So we're continuing this uh, study here in the fall. We're calling, uh, giving it a title uh, for this fall study, Courage and Chaos, because we've got plenty of chaos. And just, uh, I mean, th these are remarkable times because you think it can't get any more chaotic. You think it can't get any, it, it, it can't get more strange, and it does. There is an uncertainty be because the world as we have known it has basically changed since last March, and uh, there's been a great earthquake. The thing about earthquakes, and growing up in California, I've been in more than a few earthquakes. I remember probably the first year we were married and living in Southern California, Mary asked me at a certain point, she said, you know, I've noticed when we walk in to a mall, we walk into a large building, you always, um, you always look around. And I said, uh, yeah, I guess I do. I hadn't thought of it, but she said, why do you do that? I said, I want to know where the exits are. And she said, why? I said, because of earthquakes. I just subconsciously look for exits. And um, that really encouraged her heart. <laughs> and I said, well, listen, trust me, I know where the exits are. Because I've been in so many of these since I was a little kid. That, and here's the thing about an earthquake. Yeah, earthquakes, if it's a real bad earthquake. I mean, it hits, it does a lot of devastation. It, uh, I remember my, uh, my dad telling me an earthquake I, that we were in, our family was in, in Bakersfield, California. I was just a little, little toddler in a crib, and this earthquake hit middle of the night. And my dad was fighting the swaying of the house to get from the bedroom down the little tiny hallway to get to me in the crib. And, you know, of course, I'm out like a light. But he had to fight to get to me. And then I remember another time, my grandfather, drive, who, who had, from the age of 14, when his father died, he had to go to work to provide for his mother and four sisters and handicapped brother. He had to leave school at 14 to go to work in the oil fields. And I remember him driving around. I was dri driving around in his Oldsmobile. And we were looking at the twisted oil derricks in Kern County, California. And they were everywhere, everywhere. Just like somebody took a pretzel and just unbelievable stuff, the damage. The thing about earthquakes is that you'll have a big earthquake, and then it's not unusual to have an aftershock. Uh, but the aftershocks diminish but not this time. We're, we're in an earthquake right now. It keeps getting more intense. And we have a sense there's more to come. And we have a sense that we've got more chaos and uh, tumultuousness in front of us. And we probably do. I've got two quotes as we begin tonight. Again, the, the series study is Courage and Chaos, and we're going to work our way through the first six chapters of Daniel. But here is a quote from Walter Lippmann. Lippmann said, A man has honor if he holds himself to an ideal of conduct, even though it is inconvenient, unprofitable, and dangerous to do so. That's an honorable man. Now, when I read that quote, when you, when you think about an honorable man, an honorable man also has courage. So let's exchange honor in the quote for the word courage. A man, of cur a man is a man of courage if he holds himself to an ideal of conduct even though it is inconvenient, unprofitable, and dangerous to do so. Now, what's interesting about where we are right now 
is that if you hold to a certain code of conduct and you hold to your honor and your belief in the word of God, five years ago, 10 years ago, it wouldn't have been um, necessarily inconvenient, unprofitable, or even dangerous to do so, but it is now. How quickly we've been earthquaked. Second quote. So that first quote speaks of courage even in the midst of adversity, even in the midst of um, persecution, even in the midst of it costing you something, your, your honor, your courage could wind up uh, being unprofitable. That's true courage. It was John Bunyan who said, there is no way to kill a man's righteousness but by his own consent. Now to me, that's the flip side of the first quote. There is no way to kill a man's righteousness but by his own consent. In other words, you have got to agree to make a decision that would cause you to lose honor. You have to agree to make a decision that would, call, that would enable you not to be courageous, but to give in and to compromise. So we're living in a day, in an age, where there is a tremendous amount of pressure to give in and to bow and to compromise and uh, otherwise you will be canceled. That's where we are right now. We're going to look tonight at courage in a great crisis. I, I could put it this way, courage in a great crash. Secondly, we're going to look at courage in unwanted change. You see, how, how do those two tie in? Well, in Daniel 1 and 2, we're going to see a great, a great crisis. We're going to see a great crash of the nation. All right? That's going to be in verses 1 and 2. Then in verses 3 through 7, we're going to see the courage that is needed in unwanted change. So watch this before I even read the text. In, in verses 1 and 2, the nation of Judah is going to go down. They're going to crash. They are going to be invaded by the most powerful nation on the face of the earth with, with his Babylon, which, with its king Nebuchadnezzar. And the nation is going to crash, and they are going to be taken into captivity for 70 years. So that affects the nation. It, it's the, the national peace. It's the national security. It's the national well-being. Things happen to nations. But nations are comprised of individuals. And when there is a national crash, it affects individuals. So in verses 1 and 2, we've got the national crash. And then beginning with verse 3, really for the, first, for, the next, for the whole first six chapters of Daniel, we're looking at Daniel and his friends and how they as individuals deal with the unwanted change that comes when there is a great crash nationally. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, so his third year, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. This is 605 B.C. Verse 2. The Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. Now let's stop right there. Notice the phrasing. It doesn't say that Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to take over. It says the Lord gave 
Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand. This was a judgment from God. He gave them over because they did not want him. Then, and so they're taken off for 70 years into Babylon. So the Lord raises up nations, the Lord sets them down. Then you get into verse 3, and what you've got in verse 3 is that you've got courage in unwanted change. This is where we meet Daniel and his three friends. And when, once again, big picture is God's in charge of the universe, he's in charge of the world, he's in charge of the nations. God has a prophetic plan. You can read about it in Scripture. Jesus is coming back. He'll set up his kingdom. There'll be a new heaven, a new earth. There'll be a new Jerusalem. All this stuff is going to be incredible. Because, you see, guys, we're aliens here. This really is not our home. And we've been given great comforts here, and we thank God for the comforts, but it is possible to get too comfortable and to forget the one who is the giver of these gifts. And our hearts begin to turn, and what happens, we get ourselves in trouble spiritually, and we begin to want to hold on to what we have, and if there is unwanted change, we get upset because we don't want change because we've got a good life and we've got a stable life and we've made plans and we're actually starting to realize the plans, years of work and years of, you know, thinking through and making decisions and we're starting to get right. We got it just kind of the way we want it, getting ready to set up for retirement. Note the unwanted change that's going to hit individuals. And is this not what has happened to us? There's been a national crisis, and as a result, there's been unwanted change in your life and in mine, everybody in this room, to one degree or another. Verse 3, Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, the chief of his officials, to bring in some of the sons of Israel, including some of the royal family and of the nobles. That would be Daniel and his buddies. Youths in whom there was no defect, who were good-looking, showing intelligence in every branch of wisdom, endowed with understanding and discerning knowledge, and who had ability for serving in the king's court. And he ordered him to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. So they're enrolled now. These guys are the cream of the crop of Judah, and this is what conquering kings would do. They'd find the cream of the crop of the young men. They'd bring them in as teenagers, and they would uh, indoctrinate them. They're going to get a new name. They're going to get a new uh, diet. They're going to get a new system of laws. They're going to get a new culture. They're going to, they're going to be completely uh, introduced to something different than what they have come from. And then they'll serve in the king's court as his advisors. Verse 5, the king appointed for them a daily ration from the king's choice food and from the wine which he drank and appointed that they should be educated three years at the end of which they were entered the king's personal service. Now among, these, among them from the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Then the commander of the officials assigned new names to them. And to Daniel, he assigned the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. So you got a national crash that results in unwanted change for these young men. Acts 14.22 says, through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We all have our plans and our hopes and our dreams. I remember a financial plan we did and sit down with a financial advisor and grab a sharp and we made some plans and he gave me these color-coded charts and a book about like that. I love that plan. I mean, it was a great plan. And I mean, within a month, it was like, hey, Lord, here's my financial plan. I'm trying to be a good steward. Oh, yeah, that's really great. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, kind of had to put the plan on hold there for about, oh, two years because there was uh, unforeseen events. There was unwanted change. See, that's the problem with plans. It's always good to write your plans in pencil. 
and not ink. Because there are always unforeseen events and there's always, there's always some kind of earthquake, tsunami, that's going to hit you that is not foreseen, that is not planned on. It might be for the nation, but even if it's for the nation, it has change involved for you and your future. We're all dealing with this. Um, I wrote some stuff on this a while back, and let me just read you some excerpts of what I wrote in regard to this passage and what was going on. So in 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar shows up and everything changed for Daniel and his friends. It would have been easy for Daniel to imagine that his life was over. And if I'm not mistaken, some of you in this room sort of feel that way. This is why men take their lives. They think it's over, and they lose hope. God's judgment had arrived, and it was everyone's worst nightmare. Another king from a more powerful nation was now calling the shots. He would, live, he would leave a Jewish king in place, but only as a figurehead and puppet. But for the little nation of Judah, the gig was up. When the nation crashed, so did Daniel's plan for his life. So these kids, 15, 16, 17? When you were that age, you had plans. You're trying to figure out. So for us, you're figuring out when you're that age, so what am I going to do after high school? My parents were wondering if I'd get through high school. And I did, barely. That's a true story. Uh, what am I going to do after high school? Well, what do I want to study? Well, I don't know. What are you interested in? I don't know, not much. Really didn't like school. But you got to make some kind of plan. What, do you go in the military? Do you go to trade school? Do you just sit around and play video games? I mean, what are you going to do? And if you've got some savvy, and if you want to make something of your life, you're making some kind of plan. And you're doing it to the best of your ability, and you're thinking about your life, and you're trying to make good decisions, and you should be trying to get some good counsel. And you put in place a plan. We do that through every stage of life. We're trying to plan for what's down the road. We're trying to plan for the next step. We're trying to plan for the next chapter. And that's a good thing because we want to be good stewards and we want to be wise. But sometimes there is a change that is bigger than us and when there is a change that is a national crash, that is a national crisis, where does it come from? Ultimately, it comes from the Lord. He shakes up nations and he shakes up people to get their attention. So it's safe to say that sometimes our worlds crash and so do our dreams. At some point, every man's life crashes. And it seems like your life is over. It may be the death of a spouse or a child. It, it could be the death of a marriage, a divorce you don't want. You never dreamed that would happen to you, but it did. A man's life can crash through bankruptcy or because a teenager has run away from home. There are a thousand different events that can crash our lives. Sometimes the crash is the result of a bad decision, but it can just as easily be the result of simply living life. When a man's life crashes, what's been your crash? I've got mine, you've got yours. When a man's life crashes, it always kicks in cause and effect. Sometimes the results are devastating and a man simply gives up, withdraws in defeat and despair, and checks out a life. This is why I could give you probably eight to 10 names of men that were Christian men involved in men's Bible studies, involved in leadership, who over the last eight, nine, 10 years have taken their lives. Because what happens is, this is serious stuff, by the way. 
This is really serious stuff. Because if you love Christ, you have an enemy that hates your guts. Because you're, you love Christ. And the enemy is a liar. And he is a murderer. And he will do everything he can do to break into our lives when we find ourselves at a place, at a crossroads where there has been <clears throat> this um, unexpected change and we see no way out and we see no exit. And what he wants to do, this is where Proverbs 4 would tie in, Guard your heart, guard your mind, for from it flows the wellsprings of life. You gotta be careful who you're listening to. You gotta be careful what voices you're listening to. This is why in times like these, you gotta be in the scriptures. You have to be. You've gotta have biblical counselors. I don't mean professional counselors. I mean the guys you listen to, the guys who influence you, need to be men of the word, not of the world. Because the world is gonna steer you wrong and Satan wants to destroy you and destroy your life. And when you run into a situation where there's no way out and there is no escape, he's gonna do everything he can do to take away your hope, to take away your trust, to take away your faith. And the only way out is to take your own life. When that happens, there is dem demonic oppression. When there is this unwanted change, um, you, you wake up in the morning. Well, actually, you go to bed. And uh, everything that was near and dear and familiar to you and comfortable to you by unwanted change is gone. That's what happened to Daniel. They've been picked up, taken from their home, taken from their families, and they're in this now university indoctrination program that is designed to strip them of everything they've been taught about the living God. And to not educate them, but to indoctrinate them. Uh, they, they weren't looking for this, they weren't expecting it. Yet, as you read through Daniel, you can see very clearly that the hand of God was all over this kid. God had something in mind for Daniel that his parents didn't have in mind for him. We don't know anything about his parents. I tend to think, it's just a suspicion, I can't prove it. But a, but a young man with this kind of maturity at that age, my guess is he, he came from a godly home. He had parents that knew the Lord, who loved the Lord, who instructed him in the things of God. He had a Deuteronomy 6 kind of dad is my guess. Again, I can't prove it. This is an argument from silence. But the maturity and the wisdom that, was, that he had was not only a gift from God, but I think came from the teaching and modeling and example of godly parents who probably, I, I'm convinced, listened to the prophets and knew judgment was coming and were concerned about the future of their son just as we are concerned about the future of our kids and our grandkids. Because we're at a crossroads and we all know we're at a crossroads. I quoted, uh, I think the first week that we met this fall, I quoted from uh, Os Guinness, his book, The Dust of Death, that he wrote in 1973. Os Guinness is right around 80, early 80s right now. Um, a Christian apologist, a defender of the faith, uh, just an incredibly wise. Um, he writes books that are so wise in regard to the culture and where we are in the church. This book is 50 years old and the publishers come out with a new edition of The Dust of Death that he wrote in 1973. He grew up in Ireland, he was born in Ireland, his parents were missionaries in China. He saw the communists take over. Uh, he had two brothers die in that. His dad died. Uh, 
he and his mom got out. In 1968, he wound up taking, um, he took a trip across the United States in 68. 68 was an earthquake year. Eric McTaxis just interviewed Guinness on his radio program. You can watch it on YouTube. It was just done a couple of days ago. And uh, so in 73, Os Guinness wrote this book about what he saw in America and what the real issues were. And uh, now 50 years later, he's commenting on what's occurred since 68. And when he was talking to Metaxas, he said, we're in 2020, 2020 is the new 1968. This is, we're being earthquaked. There is a great crash here. And he said, these are extremely dangerous times. And he's not a guy given the hyperbole. He's not a guy that is always, you know, it's the end of the world. That's not him. He's really measured. But he said, this, these are dangerous days. That there is satanic activity going on all around us. And he's right. Now, you think about Daniel being, uh, and his friends, being taken into Babylon and into this Babylonian Harvard MBA program, Kennedy School of Government type of thing, the Nebuchadnezzar School of Government. And it was a complete, it was a complete makeover of their lives, of their names, of their languages, of their belief system, of, it, it was complete and total. It was designed to um, turn them inside out and to reject what they had been taught and to adopt something brand new. In his introduction, and you can again watch this in the interview with Metaxas, he talks about four critical things that have happened since the events of 68 in this country. He says, and I'm just going to jump in here, Os Guinness says, there is a fourth and crucial area where hindsight has indeed proved critical, so much so that understanding it would make this new preface of the book worth the price of the whole book. The point lies in understanding the long march through the institutions. The long march through the institutions. Ever since 1789, you say, what's 1789? That was the French Revolution. What Guinness is saying in this book is that right now in America, what you've got, you've got a group of people who believe in the principles of the American Revolution. The American Revolution, if you look at the documents, is full of scripture. But there was a revolution in France that was characterized by anarchy and lawlessness and absolute uh, murder from sunup to sunrise. And they had guillotines, and they were lopping heads off. And what's interesting, when you study the French Revolution, those who were the founders of the French Revolution and who fueled the revolution got canceled, and they wound up with their heads in the basket. Because there's no stopping anarchy and lawlessness. It gets out of control, and it's demonic. He said in 68, there were over 100 cities on fire in the United States, a hundred cities. Right now, you know, you got Portland and Seattle and different places, where we know about that. But there are a hundred, some say 125. It was absolute chaos. What happened was, is that the revolutionaries began to realize that they, weren't not, they were not gonna win by those methods. There were too many people against them, they were outnumbered, they were gonna have a different strategy. So he says the term, the long march through the institutions came into play in 67 when Rudy Duchke, leader of West German's Red Brigade, and I remember reading about this guy, used to explain and advance the tactics that he urged the brigade and the radical left to take after the failure of the counterculture. So what they were trying to pull off uh, in, in 67, 68, 69, 
they realized, we're not gonna pull this revolution off by violence. So they came up with another strategy. He says Karl Marx had predicted revolution would be a sudden upheaval, led by the proletariat and exploiting the contradictions of class and ex economics. But there had never been such a revolution, even in Russia. Um, the revolution in any nation has never been sudden. So then he quotes some other men that came along and came up with something called cultural Marxism. And Antonio Gramsci, along with Herbert Marcuse, who was a tenured professor at University of California, came up with this idea. Its goal must be to, to gain dominance in the ruling class through penetrating the gatekeepers and the switch points in a society, first demoralizing the previous leaders of the ruling class and then slowly replacing them with new revolutionary ideas and narratives. If revolutionaries were to gain mastery of human consciousness in this way, they would not need concentration camps and mass murders. So what they came up with was a long march through the institutions. And back then, they came up with a plan to infiltrate the universities. And they went after the middle class and upper class white kids. And they got them. And this is where we are right now. Thus, in Dushki's words, revolution is not a short act when something happens once and then everything is different. Revolution is a long and complicated process. Guinness says, 50 years later, it's clear that the long march to the institutions has succeeded beyond the wildest dreams of the late 60s. In much of the worlds of colleges and universities, the press and the media and Hollywood and entertainment, many of the prominent ideas and attitudes reflect the thinking of 1789 and its heirs, the French Revolution, and not the ideals of 1776. America has been bewitched. The great American Republic is in the process of switching revolutions from the American to the French. Uh, this is where we are. Jesus is coming back. I'm all for him coming back tonight. I vote for that. Um, this world is not our home. We're here, this is temporary. But he's got a place for us. It'll be forever. Now, the question is, are we in the last days? We've been in the last days since Jesus ascended to the Father. And they're staring as he goes up in Acts 1, and the two angels say, this Jesus, just as you've seen him gone up, he will come back in the same way. So we've been in the last days for 2,000 years. It would be great if he would come right now. What if he doesn't come for 500 years? What do we do with these times? What do we do with all of the changes? What do we do with all of the unwanted changes? What, if we, what do we do if at this crossroads it goes a way that we would not want to see it go? What do we do? What we do is we keep following the Lord. That's what we do. We keep being his men and we keep being salt and light. We keep being Joshua's. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. We keep loving the Lord. We keep going about our business. We keep uh, loving our wives. We keep working on our marriages. We keep um, loving and instructing our children and disciplining them. We, this is what we do. This is our calling as Christian men's. And we wonder, can that really make any kind of difference? Um, the answer is yes. So we've seen what's happened because of the long march through the institutions. And we're not surprised by it. Well, we kind of were surprised by it because it just kind of came out of nowhere. It was done 
uh, it really was open, but we just, I mean, it just suddenly appeared. And I mean, there's a grip on those institutions and a whole generation has been conned. I recently read an article by a woman named Elise L. Hage. E-L-H-A-G-E. It's the article, and it can be found at the Gospel Coalition website. Christian school can change the trajectory of an at-risk student's future family life. Let me say that again. Christian school can change the trajectory of an at-risk student's future family life. I want to read just a little bit of this to you because... um, You see, what, why are you going to talk about? You're going to talk about education here? You're going to talk about schooling? Yeah. And I'll tell you why I'm going to talk about it. Flip over to Deuteronomy 6 real quick. Fathers and grandfathers, biblically, are to be the primary educators of their children and grandchildren. Verse 6, now this is the commandment, the statutes, and the judgments which the Lord your God has commanded me to teach you that you might do them in the land where you're going over to possess. So they're getting ready to go into the land. This is Moses here writing. So that you and your son and your grandson might fear the Lord your God to keep all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life and that your days may be prolonged. So he's writing to the men. He's writing to the, to the dads. He's writing, writing to the, the grandpas. Because God has called men to lead the family, and God's called men to lead the church. O Israel, you should listen and be careful to do it, that it may be well with you, and that you may multiply greatly, just as the Lord, the God of your fathers, has promised you in a land flowing with milk and honey. Now, here are some instructions from the Lord God Almighty. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God, with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, these words which I am commanding you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and shall talk of them when you, and obviously your daughters, and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So here is, here is the job that God gives to husbands and fathers um, and grandfathers, as they're going in, really, to start a new nation. Uh, he says two things. There are two responsibilities. The first one is to love God deeply. Is to love God deeply. The second one is to teach your children diligently. So what do we do right now? We got all this unwanted change, and we don't know which way things are going. doesn't matter which way things go. The Lord is in control of that. And he's got a plan for you. He's got a plan for your kids and for your grandkids and your family. He's, he's got that. But what do I do? What can I do? How, can I make a difference or is it over? It's not over. Because you've got family. You've got relationships. So we don't get a defeatist attitude. We don't freak out. We stay the course. So you drill in. And there's two things. You love God deeply. You don't screw around. You don't play church games because your sin will find you out. And, and it's interesting, I've said this before in previous weeks, we continue to see Christian leaders who've had this reputation and this and this and this acclaim and this, and we find out there's hidden sin and they're being exposed. If there's hidden sin, Repent of it, confess it, take it to the Lord with the repentance that David showed in Psalm 51. And there's forgiveness. But it is absolute foolishness to try to live a double life right now. And you may be saying, well, Steve, you just said this not too long ago. Yes, exactly. And I'll probably continue to say it because this is a time to love God deeply. This this is a time to make sure you're listening to him and you love him with all your heart, all your soul, all your might, all your strength. And these words which I command you today shall be on your heart. So you're in the word. You can't be in the word all day long. You got a job. 
But you're, that's why you're here tonight. You're putting the word in your life and in your heart, and you're trying to apply it. Secondly, you teach your children and your grandchildren diligently. You shall teach them diligently to your sons and daughters and talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise up. So the key word is to be with. To be with. We go through this stuff together and we're with. And you make decisions on being with. Oh, I want to go do this. I want to go do this. And that's fine. But we're, we're living in desperate times and you've got to be wise with your time. Ephesians 5 says, don't be, live as unwise, but as wise men, for the days are evil. So you only have so much, um, you only have so much time that's not committed, that's free time, you want to be wise with your discretionary time. And Satan does everything he can do to get us so busy that we can't be with those who are most important in our lives. But as you're with, you're teaching. As you're with, you're modeling. As you're with, you are um, conveying a sense of stability. You're, you're conveying because of your trust in God and your hope in God and your faith in God. And even as these little kids are having to wear masks, and even as they're having to stay away, and even as one of my grandsons that did a few months ago, when I went to hug him, he went like this. Because you see, that's what's going on right now. And that's what is being inculcated right now. Well, you gotta counter that, you see. These kids will remember this for the rest of their lives. So, as you're with, you convey a sense of safety, you convey a sense of calm, you convey a sense of optimism, you convey a sense of assurance and love and warmth and um, not fear. Uh, what you do is you're providing, um, you're providing a shelter. You're providing a... a a refuge. You're providing um, <laughs> what you're doing is what God said to the people in Babylon in Jeremiah 29, 29. Just by how you're living, what you're saying to your kids and grandkids is what God said to you. I know the plans I have for you. Plans for your welfare and not for a calamity to give you a future and a hope. And by your trust in God and as you're just with them, you're not pounding them with the Bible every day. You're just with them. You're hanging out with them. And now and then something will come up and you talk to them about the Lord. You talk about just in conversation as you're going through life. And then, but you see, you're their shepherd. You're their grandpa. They're your dad. And they got a bunch of other shepherds in their life that are trying to influence them. But you see, there is a gravitas about you. There, there is a legitimacy about you. There is an authenticity about you because Christ is in you. This article I was going to take time to read is about a young woman that grew up in a, uh, again, Christian school can change the trajectory of an at-risk student's future family life. Give me about five minutes and we'll close. This is an interesting article. You think it's about school. It's really about godly men. When I was two years old, my newly divorced mom enrolled me in one of our area's most popular and pricey Christian preschool programs so that she could go to work. It was an expensive choice for a single mom and one she continuously had to defend to family members who questioned why she would pay private school tuition when she could barely make ends meet. Because we moved around a lot, I ended up attending five different Christian schools over the years, from small little schools to large um, schools that I eventually graduated from. Christian schooling became one of the few constants in my life where the shape of my family never seemed to stay the same. Even after another divorce and through various job changes and relationship challenges, my mom always found a way to keep me and for a time my younger siblings in Christian school. 
it turned out to be one of the best investments she would make in my future. In many ways, Christian education was my lifeline out of a world plagued by father hunger, family dysfunction, and economic instability. Not only did I receive a private school education, I also gained the direction and support I needed to stay on a path towards the stable family life I enjoy today. She is saying her life is different today than it was as she was being raised. There was instability, there's stability. She references a study that's been done that show that low-income students who are educated in Christian schools, well, here's one line. The report found that students educated in private schools, especially Protestant schools, biblically-based schools, are more likely to be in intact marriages and to avoid out-of-wedlock births as adults. Um, she keeps nailing the difference it makes for low-income kids that tend to have families that are scattered and fragmented and broken got all the graphs, goes on and says, uh, she's got three points. As someone who was raised in a financially turbulent single-parent household, I have a few theories about why this might be the case, why a, a Christian school helped her. Here are three ways religious schooling positively helped shape my future family life for the better. Number one, examples of healthy marriages and decent fathers and husbands. That's remarkable. Growing up in a broken home where men were either absent, unreliable, or dangerous, the messages I absorbed about father's marriage and family life were overwhelmingly negative. But in Christian school, I found peace and hope in the midst of family turmoil. It was there that I was introduced to the concept of, as God, of God as my father, who looked upon me as his child, which mattered a great deal to a little girl who desperately missed her biological father. And it was there that I experienced Christ's unconditional, unfailing love through the lives of my teachers and the pastors who led the school. At the, time, at the same time, I was exposed to healthy married families with faithful dads and husbands. Dads who did not harm or abandon their families, but who loved God, their wives, and their children. She's talking, I got exposed to Deuteronomy 6 men. Many of these examples came from married teachers whose spouses worked at the school, like my favorite bus driver, janitor, Mr. Rob, a gentle giant whose wife taught kindergarten, or my high school algebra teacher and senior advisor, Mr. Ammons. Something I noticed about their families is the role faith played in their lives. The parents prayed together and took their children to church often, and they were committed to something, someone bigger than just each other. Secondly, she was given a worldview that pointed her to a path for a successful future. In contrast, between my unstable family life at home where divorce and father absence seemed to spread like a disease, what I experienced in the Christian school classroom gave me a taste of a healthy family life. I was taught a worldview that said every life has value and purpose, that marriage was designed by God for the good of children and society, that divorce was taboo, and sex and parenthood should be reserved for marriage. Importantly, I saw these values lived out in the lives of my teachers and in most of the families of my peers. Watch this. I learned that boundaries matter, not to fence me in, but to protect me from harm. Instead of lessons on condoms, I was encouraged to delay sex until I was married and to work hard in school so I could go to college and to eventually get married and start a family, a sequence of steps that is actually linked to lower chances of poverty and a bigger chance of achieving the American dream. The third one is supportive and like-minded peers. Just being around kids that believe those things made a difference in her life. Um, I could go on, but I won't. I will say this. We are not to be afraid of the future, but to trust the one who can be trusted. And here's what happens. Everything you've been through in your life, guys, it's no mistake that we're alive right now at this time in history. 
We have been appointed by God to exist right now, and we have been appointed by God to be his salt and light in the midst of this chaos. And it's because of what we've been through, it's because of the grace and mercy of God and the kindness of God that's led us to repentance, and it's through the challenges and the broken dreams, and it's been through the setbacks, and it's been through our own sin and the mercy of God we have seen our path not go the way we thought it should go, but we've seen God do something different and even take our failures and our bad decisions and bring good out of it. And as a result of that, in these chaotic times, we don't have to be fearful. We can have courage and we can stay the course and follow Christ and follow his word and then teach that and model it to our children and our grandchildren that the God of heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ, they are real. And it's true. And it's the only way to live. And it's the best way to live. You want to be used by God? These are times to be used by God. Just by simply loving him, loving your family, and applying your faith each day. And it impacts little girls. And it impacts little boys. We've got nothing to fear. Let's pray. So, Father, in Daniel chapter 1, Daniel had no clue what the rest of his life would bring. He had no clue about the lion's den. His three buddies had no clue that they would face a fiery furnace. We have no clue what we're going to face. All we know is that we're here and that we've been called by you and we've been given a future and a hope. Use us. Use us. Help us to go deep with you in our hearts. Give us a stability in our own hearts as we take our fears and our concerns to you. David said, the Lord delivered me from all my fears. We don't have to fear. You're our God, you're our Savior, you are our Lord. Psalm 138.8, the Lord will accomplish that which concerns me. Use us, Lord. Help us to be salt and light in these chaotic times. Help people to notice that there's a difference in our lives because of Jesus. And we pray these things in his name. Amen.